0: Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I've been absolutely itching to say something about education and the new South Africa ever since it was revealed just a week or so ago that we had come last, literally last, in an important global study on how well fourth grade children, that's around about 10 years old, can read. The so-called Progress in International Reading Literacy Study, PEARLS, is an international research project, basically American, conducted roughly every five years. And the most recent iteration, the 2021 report, measured 65 education systems a year late because of COVID, obviously. Um, uh, And the fact that South African schools were closed for an unusually long time may account for our uh, position at number 65 for fourth grade ability to read for meaning. Our sixth graders, who were also measured, came only fifth last, beating Jordan, Egypt, and Moroccan um, fourth and fifth graders. Interestingly, when asked how much they enjoyed reading, our fourth graders did much better, indicating that perhaps if only they had decent teachers, they were eager to learn. Sadly, when tested how confident they were reading, they came last again. Needless to say, the arrival of this news set off a great wail of outrage and complaint and accusation. Many editorials and op-eds. I listened to a podcast the other day where a, a man I greatly admire was arguing that the failure of our education system was merely a symptom of our greater failure as a country since we became a democracy. If we couldn't educate our children, he argued, we were unlikely to be able to grow the economy. And there was not much argument from the other side to that point of view. But of course, there is an argument that says that this thinking is quite wrong. Not to defend the reading results, they're embarrassing and shameful by any standards, but sadly, typical of almost anything the African National Congress touches. But but there is something mythical about the argument that somehow education and emig- economic growth belong to each other, that they're linked, because they aren't. As far back as 2001, a paper in the World Bank Economic Review argued, in fact, that quote cross-national data shows no association between increases in human capital attributable to the rising educational attainment of the labour force and the rate of growth of output per worker. Harvard University Kennedy School's Professor Ricardo Hausman argued much later that in fact uh, when UK Prime Minister Tony Blair uh, back uh, during an election campaign in 2001 was possibly also quite wrong when he lent on... The, the conventional view of um, uh, education, education, education. It won him votes. And his promise was that if Britain were to broaden access to schools and make schools better, substantial and more equitable economic growth would soon follow. It sounds so logical when you're saying it from the you know the, the political pulpit, it's hard to argue. Ricardo Hausmann is no stranger to South Africa, and I think he's arguably the world's greatest development economist. You know, one way to start an argument among economists is to say stuff exactly like that. Anyway, he argued in 2015 <clears throat> that, quote, in fact, the push for better education is an experiment that has already been carried out globally since 2001, let's say, Um and that the long-term payoff has been surprisingly disappointing. And I'm quoting from him now. In in the 50 years from 1960 to 2010, the global labor force's average time in school essentially tripled from 2.8 years to 8.3 years, which means that the average worker in a median average country went from less than half a primary education to more than half a high school education in that time how much richer should these countries have expected to become if the if the proposition the conventional proposition is true in 1965 france had a labor force that averaged less than 5 years of schooling and a per capita income of 14000 dollars at 2005 prices in 2010 Countries with a similar level of education had a per capita income of less than a thousand dollars. How so? Forgive me for going on quoting Hausman, um, but the case, f- not against education, but for putting it in its place, um, I don't think has ever been better put. As is often the case, Hausman continues. The experience of individual countries is more revealing than the averages. China started with less education than Tunisia, Mexico, Kenya or Iran in 1960 and had made less progress than them by 2010 in terms of education. And yet in terms of economic growth, China blew them all out of the water. The same can be said of Thailand and Indonesia vis-a-vis the Philippines, Cameroon, Ghana or Panama. Again, the fast growers must be doing something in addition to providing education. And, he says, there's more bad news for the education, 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 Tony Blair-type crowd. Most of the skills that a labor force possesses were required on the job. What a society knows how to do is known mainly in its firms, in its companies, not in its schools. At most modern firms... Fewer than 15% of the positions are open for entry-level workers, meaning that employers demand something that the education system cannot and is not expected to provide. After all, he says, though the typical country with 10 years of schooling had a per capita income of $30,000 in 2010, per capita income in Albania, Armenia and Sri Lanka which have achieved that level of schooling with less than $5,000. So whatever is preventing these countries from becoming richer, he says, it's not a lack of education. To say that education is your growth strategy means you're giving up on everyone who has already gone through the school system. Most people over 18 and almost everybody over 25. It is a strategy that ignores the potential that is in 100% of today's labour force, 98% of next year's, and a huge number of people who will be around for the next half century. An education-only strategy is bound to make all of them regret having been born too soon. This generation, and I think he's talking about ours, we're all 60s and 70s, is too old for education to be its growth strategy, concludes Hausman. It needs a growth strategy that will make it more productive and thus able to create the resources to invest more in the education of the next generation. Our generation owes it to theirs to have a growth strategy for ourselves and that strategy will not be about us going back to school. Hausman, of course, knows what the answer is. Uh, he's director of the Harvard Growth Lab at the Kennedy School and it's more data at his uh, fingertips, uh, data is that uh, I never get mixed up between data and data at his fingertips than possibly any other institution anywhere. Successful economies he says when he talks, chase skills development as hard as they do education and it was interesting I listened to Soge Zibi talk at the um, Franchook literary Festival the other day. Talking about his program, uh, a political program ahead of the elections in South Africa next year. And while he said that, you know, the education system had left a lot of people behind, his party, if it were successful um, or if it had an opportunity, would make sure that literally everybody in the country had a skill. It's so important. I watched Haussmann teach a first year economics class. At Harvard about a year ago. Sorry, about a decade ago. Or maybe more. No, it was about 2010. He took Ghana and Thailand as examples. And compared um, their economies in the mid-60s. They were roughly the same size. Each produced a dominant commodity. uh, Ghana cocoa and uh, Thailand rice. Ghana had the benefit of... uh, Uh, being English-speaking, or at least of English being widely spoken inside the borders of the country. Fast forward uh, to 2010, though, and the Thais were a highly complex industrial economy, many times the size of Ghana, which remained nonetheless the world's second biggest producer of cocoa. So the skill of producing cocoa had not been lost. Um, What had happened in between, though, was an explosion of skills in Thailand, and the country... Uh, had opened up to foreign investors who brought in new products and experience into the economy. Haussmann's Growth Lab says that what exports tell you, tells the world how smart you are, or what you export tells the world how smart you are. Countries whose exports are more complex, says the Growth Lab, than expected for their income level, grow faster. Growth can therefore be driven by diversifying know-how to produce a broader and increasingly more complex set of goods and services. To measure how well you're doing, the Growth Lab produces a live digital atlas of economic complexity. And when you compare Thailand and Ghana today, it's just embarrassing. In 2020, not a very good year as explained earlier, the tires exported and wait for this number. 263 billion dollars worth of goods, of which rice was just 1%, and machinery and cars and electronics more than 15%. The Atlas ranks Thailand 24th in economic complexity out of 133 countries. The Ghanaians managed to export just 18.9 billion dollars worth of goods, of uh, which cocoa beans still accounted for around 9%, but with gold taking uh, 25%, the bulk. Its complexity rank was seventy-three, seventy-third. South Africa, for the record, exported uh, $106 billion worth of goods, overwhelmingly minerals, and our complexity was ranked well below Thailand's at uh, 35 the Atlas ranks China as export of the most complex set of products and therefore implies that it has the most complex set of skills or the most varied set of skills. And, and uh, the US comes second to China. Um, and basically what the Atlas is saying is that the more differentiated your skills are in the country, the more likely you are to grow. Here in South Africa, sadly, we don't appreciate skills that much. We look down on them socially. Um, we don't allow many skills into the country. I've heard so many stories of companies trying to get trying to get skilled executives, skilled employees into South Africa to do jobs South Africans simply don't know how to do, and they just can't get past uh, home affairs. We've scrapped key avenues to skills transfer by getting rid of the old apprenticeship system, And second, by replacing skilled white teachers or nurses or other professionals or tradespeople without understanding what a difference experience makes and without understanding that a skill can't be transferred in a textbook or through a video. You have to watch somebody doing something for years before you can do it better or equally well. As a a result of uh, our attitude to skills, not education, we are falling apart. We don't know how to fix what's broken, and we still don't know why we can't. Getting an education isn't going to help us figure that out any better. You don't need to be able to read to know how to repair a sewage pump. You just need to remember what the person you watched do it for five years did. You don't need to know how to read to drive a complex piece of machinery to replace the solenoids in your irrigation system or how to sail a boat in bad weather. You don't even need to know how to read. To do a heart transplant, provided you've watched somebody who knows what they're doing, do it a thousand times. Sports tell us that you don't need to read to be a brilliant spin bowler or a winning athlete. What you need is skill and experience. That's it. That's all. And you need someone in charge who appreciates the job well done. The absence of a government that gets any of this is our tragedy. It's all way too late now. The die for this government, one way or another, one time or another, is already cast. It's on its way out, slowly, sadly, but inevitably. What replaces it, uh, we have no idea yet. But when everything is already broken, only skills and only experience are going to be able to fix it all again. That's me for another week. I've loved talking to you about this subject and I hope you've enjoyed listening. I'll be back at the same time next week. Until then, take care.